Welcome to the Good People Podcast, where each episode we explore what it means to be good by talking to everyday heroes, philanthropists, altruists, and do-gooders. I'm Kelsey Timmerman, author of Where Am I Giving, a global adventure exploring how to use your gifts and talents to make a difference. And I'm joined today by two of the best people that I know, Jay Mormon. That might be a bit of a, a bit of a stretch. Yeah. But and um, my good friend Scott Truex, how you doing, Scott? Good morning. Thanks good for morning. coming on the podcast. Oh, this is great. Great setting. Great, great studio. I like it. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> well, it could be picked up a little bit, Scott. Okay. <laughs> it's, we'll it's, try to dust next time. It's Scott's office, and really, if you look around here, it is pretty interesting. I might get distracted. Uh, I see on the walls a poster that says "Food as Community Development." I see um, a, a building made uh, like a. I don't know. Cardboard and toothpicks? I don't know what that is. Probably something more official than cardboard and toothpicks. Yeah. You, a building design. At an art store, it has a much higher value. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a chipboard there. It's not cardboard. So we did a field trip today at Scott's office uh, in downtown Muncie, Indiana. Scott, uh, tell us a little bit um, about what your official title is. Well, good. Um, good morning or afternoon, whatever time it is. It's Whenever you're listening to it. Yeah. Um, so currently, I'm the chair of the Department of Urban Planning uh, at Ball State University. At Ball State yeah. University, College of Architecture and Planning. I've uh, been at Ball State a little over 30 years, and uh, but I also wear another hat, which is why we're in this office. Uh, a colleague and good friend, uh, John Motlock, and I started a, a kind of we call it a a think and do center, an idea that we wanted a, a uh, outlet. Um, a, a way that we could begin to discuss uh, critical issues that we think are important, uh, focused primarily around food, water, and energy as systems that we think are really critical for any neighborhood, community, region uh, to be able to have control of and to localize all of those systems. So we created this something called Sustainable Communities Institute. And um, it, it sort of functions, it, it's intended to be a, a, a for-profit, but it really functions as a non-for-profit. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and, but it's an outlet for us to, to explore projects, uh, develop a research uh, agenda, and to partner. Uh, we've got a, a, a number of sort of efforts going on. And it, in the intent is not only to be able to uh, raise consciousness and issues and identify uh, these topics and why they're important, but also potentially to get them implemented and to follow through. Um, normally a consultant sort of ends when the project's over. Um, we're still working with the folks that we've developed a partnership with. So we're working to try to implement those projects, uh, especially the ones around some of our urban farming and community development and how we use food in that way. And their their network, Jay, is like all over the world. So I'm working on a new project that we really haven't talked about in this podcast yet, and I'm not going to go into now. But, um, I mean, I'm going to be – I want to go visit this thing called the Great Green Wall in Africa where they're reforesting yeah. the desert to kind of keep the – hail from encroaching right. on land and they have contacts there uh talking about going to south america they have contacts there i mean they're uh i love the idea of a place that you can come with a john a yeah. colleague a friend and just sit and think about what are the problems of the world yeah. and what how do our skills line up yeah. that we can help address some of those well it's a funny story in a sense how john and i got connected i was running our indianapolis center and john was a, a had been the department chair of, of landscape architecture at Ball State, so I was on a board uh, African University and was asked to go to Cameroon to be in a look at where we might locate um, a, a new university focused around agriculture, and we really wanted that to be sustainable agriculture, not uh, sort of an agribusiness model that has gets taken over parts of Africa. So John and I traveled to Africa. That was our first really. Once you travel to someone for about a week, you either decide right away if that's going to work as a partnership or if it's not. And so uh, from that point on until uh, John retired a little over a year ago, uh, we were accused of spending more time together than with our wives. So, uh, But it's, it's again, it is that kind of outlet. Uh, we, uh, It's fun to have someone that you can disagree with and have great conversations and then go have a beer and not it's 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 we, we approach things so differently and what is is great the value in that is 
we are the lens in which we're seeing things based on experiences, based on, you know, of course, anyone who grows up in Texas like John did, I, <laughs> you have to wonder, you know. But uh, but the idea that you have someone that you can, and I think you have that with JR mm-hmm. and the idea that you can bounce things. And I, that's what really what uh, we value here and being able to do that. And then other people get involved in that conversation. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't know why I didn't think of to have you on the podcast earlier. You know, I think some people are so close in your circle already that you just, you know, they're just, that's Scott. You know, it's my friend Scott. And then and you may not think of always about the, the good work that they're doing. Uh, but the thing that really kind of flipped the switch for me of like, oh, my gosh, I really need to have Scott on the podcast is when you had a chance to go to the Mexico border. Yes. And I um, just some of your posts, some of your photos, um, some of the things that you shared with me. I'm like, you really need to come on. And and so if you could talk a little bit about sure. what took you down to the border yeah. and what that experience was like. So um, I'm involved. Have been involved in an organization called Christian Community Development Association. It's a national group, but specifically, uh, a good friend down in uh, Jimmy Doral down in Waco, Texas, has invited me to speak at their statewide conference for the last. It's probably six or seven years, that uh, the Texas version of that. And in that process, talking about food and community development and how we need to transition that system into a local system from sustainability principles, uh, I met a, uh, someone uh, from El Paso, um, and uh, through that began to learn. Um, they had, Senor uh, Dad uh, Nueva, they have a kind of neighborhood-based community development group. But they have discovered, being in El Paso and that relationship with Juarez, that um, they were a hub, obviously, of folks seeking asylum. And in the last year or so, um, as that issue and tensions have been growing, they found a real need to develop a program in which um, they would be able to help educate folks. So they've developed a three- or four-day curriculum, um, and uh, Sammy Descoela is the is a, the gentleman who I began to work with. He used to come to my sessions. We'd go have a beer after that and, and just be able to talk through this. Um, and what led me down there um, is we're, we're looking at how we might put one of our urban farms um, to try to be able to help provide for the food needs that are just uh, with all the folks that are in the you know coming up and and trying to uh, find a better life uh, through through coming into the estates, um, so I originally went down there with the idea that we could potentially do one of the farms and be able to for these shelters and for the folks waiting, the neighborhood and how that could become uh, part of our strategy always with food is how to create micro businesses because we believe that food. Um, should be our number one economic development driver because it affects so much. Everyone eats. It's the third highest cost in a, in a U.S. household. And why not turn that into something that we can localize for businesses? So anyway, went down there for that. But in discovering what uh, Abara, which is a new uh, program that, that uh, Sammy created, it allows, uh, he's been bringing like boards of World Vision and different groups coming down and, and getting that experience. Uh, so uh, I went down uh, to sort of learn about that, uh, look at sites for the farm, and went into Mexico with Sammy and began to see. Of course, now um, everyone is having to assemble on the, the Mexican side of the border, so in Juarez, which uh, we obviously we discovered that. It seemed to come to a, a, a maybe a big surprise to folks in Mexico that they were now going to have to house all of these people and keep people. And um, as one of Mexican officials said to me, uh, we never had a problem people wanting asylum in Mexico before. So we didn't – they don't have even the infrastructure. I mean, even paper forms and, you know, things like that that now – is a whole system that they have to. These create. are people from uh, Central America, Central America, and Mexico, even other yeah. places. Yeah. yeah, and so um, what Sammy has created is this three or four day uh, experience, and um, so we kind of walked through that. I met with. Uh, we happened to hit a Sunday or um, a Saturday, um, in which there was a joint Catholic mass, and the, we actually the border patrol allowed people to come 
uh, to the Rio Grande, to the little stream of water on each side, and they conducted mass. They built a little, you know, lean-to kind of little bridge in the priests, and they did Spanish. So um, it was a really great moment to see that, and and that gave us a chance for me to talk with some of the Border Patrol folks and learn a little bit about themselves, why, you know, why they were, what they thought about this. And so that's what Sammy's built into this program. So my intent is uh, we're right now taking a group of Ball State students over spring break, and we'll do this experiential kind of immersion in, into this topic and do it there um, in El Paso and potentially Juarez. Uh, but, um, the, you know, the intent is, I for me, I think that I really – I have some strong opinions about that that issue, uh, based on my uh, you know travels and observations, and you see the world a little different. But I really thought I really need to try to dwell into this. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that spring break trip. Um, and again, by going there and meeting with folks, uh, going into Juarez, and then seeing the tent cities and seeing talking with the officials in New Mexico who are trying to manage this. And then learning sort of the process that's in play now in terms of who gets to, to even come across and apply. It's really, um, you know, you can have a system uh, and legally that's on paper. How you implement it tells you more about what your intentions are. So if you drastically reduce the people each day to maybe 10 that you're going to allow to come across and, and pro- uh, fill out forms and process, and then basically march them back. Yes, you're you're doing the process, but I'm end result is I've now narrowed that down to where I can really control it. So that's the kind of stuff that we're going to explore. Um, obviously, um, for for at least the class, we've got a, a ton of podcasts and and other kinds of readings we're trying to to work through. So the intent is that um, the students and I will uh, kind of be able to explore this with, with Sammy and the groups and, and talk with folks who are both in the tent cities waiting. Why did you, you know, coming there uh, up from Central America? So, um, yeah, it's it's a, a journey that currently on, uh, which was started with the food discussion, which is leading into some of these. And that food discussion will continue because we the, the shelters that are, one of the things we did, we visited about four different shelters that now have popped up trying to get organized Primarily through churches, obviously the churches that have facilities in in Juarez, trying to scramble and get beds and try to make this happen. But then they got to feed people. So we're hoping that that part of this discussion is how we might uh, begin to concentrate that uh, and that effort of of helping support that. And what did you from from the people that are there administrating the process now and the systems that they're yeah. there to execute? Did you feel from them that they were um, uh, they were supportive of the process? Did they feel frustrated? What's it like to sit there and do that work every yeah. day? I imagine there's a lot of empathy it takes to take that to do that job, but some of that might end up in kind of a callousness of yeah. dealing with that many people. Yeah, I don't know that I could comment, form enough of an opinion yet. I only had a couple of conversations with some border, and they were pretty introductory. But that I think that will be one of the the folks that we'll dwell on when we get some really one on one time with with uh, border patrol folks. Yeah, it might be fun to do um, another episode with you, yeah. and then maybe a couple students that felt they got something yeah, out of this. Yeah, that would be great. No matter their perspective, just to 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 hear what they yeah. thought about their introduction into this this world. Yeah, yeah. it's really curious because this is kind of a, a one off class, and uh, haven't really advertised it a lot, but. Um, It'll, it will be interesting. I'm really looking forward to the. Now I've got a couple um, students who are who have uh, uh, family background. Uh, they're from Mexico, uh, so they're going to be part of that. So uh, we'll be able to have some testimonies of their family stories and things as part of that. So, what what preconceived notions did you have that were like shattered or challenged? There, because you know you hear about the border so much in the news the yeah. last you know four years, uh, especially around the 2016 election. Sure, sure. I mean, the president started his campaign with basically, let's build you know let's build a wall, sure. and so we're just inundated with that. And then you're there. What did you learn that you didn't know before? How was your? Well, obviously, um, <clears throat> I saw the wall. 
which has been there. I mean, there's no new wall that's been built in. So what does the, the wall look like? The wall is basically um, a large steel. You can sort of see through it. It's got slats, different parts. Is it like the red one that you see on the news? Like yeah, It's kind of like rusty color. Rusty maybe. color. Um, um, it's and not you, big and beautiful? What? Not, <laughs> or it, it's not a solar collector that we could generate energy off of. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, and, and so seeing that, I think what was really intriguing is um, the first day we went into Mexico, we walked across the bridge. So it was really weird because there's like these turnstiles that you pay like 25 cents to go through the turnstile to go into Mexico. And that's it? No one's checking your passport? No one's checking your passport or anything. You just, we just walked, put 25 cents in. And the turnstile and oh went in. It was That's like crazy. A, it's like the subway. It's, it is. It's, and it's like the ticket booth with the glass and the little. Except cheaper. Except cheaper. You know? It's like. But it's, you have to walk. Yeah. So it's not, you know, not getting a whole lot out of your quarter. It's so easy to get in that way, but then to flow the other way, depending on. Yeah. Where you're from, it's a lot harder than 25 cents and walking through a turnstile. Yeah, that's. that. Would, so going across, it was like, shouldn't I be. You know, I have my passport ready, and I'm thinking, what what do I need to do? You know, what do I have in my pockets? And I'm, yeah, you know, thinking airport security or something like that, or coming back on a flight and border. So going in was we just walked in. We began to walk through some of the tent cities. We had an appointment with some uh, officials, a, a state agency that is trying to uh, monitor and locate where people are and try to provide for them, help get food, water. Um, and then suddenly you're in this this part of Juarez where there's tents all over on the streets. People are sleeping. Um, families are there. It's largely families. I mean, all you see are kids and, and women and just trying to survive, you know. Like they're just sitting they're just sitting, sitting there. Sitting. They don't have a lot to do. There's nowhere to go. Are they cooking? Are they Some playing had, games? Or? Um, what's interesting, and, and I'm trying. we're trying to understand the order as I understand it, the ones that are closest to the border are folks from Mexico trying to get across. Those from Central America now have sort of been pushed into some of the parks and there's these tent cities because they have a different process. They've got to go now wait for the Mexican government mm. to grant them or deny them asylum in Mexico. So they don't, they're not at that border point yet. They're kind of like waiting that the next layer so it's out. it's like a more of a permanent temporary right. setting. And they, there you see campsites and you see, you know, they got Bunsen burners and, and things because they're, they're there for a period of time trying to navigate this system. Um, you know, and just talking with some, especially the folks working with the sort of government, there, there was obviously – no pre-planning of how you're going to be able to handle this suddenly. It's like a decision's made, and obviously Mexico's now having to deal with a lot of that those issues. Um, and in talking with folks uh, who work in Mexico and so on, the organizational structures in Mexico aren't the same in the U.S., and government systems and all that. So... This added, a, I think, a great deal of chaos to a situation. And, of course, unfortunately, families and individuals become the victims of that waiting and so on. So, Did, did, it, did it look like chaos to you other than just the tent cities and people sitting around? I mean, was it a fairly docile crowd of people? It was pe very docile. And, you know, one of the things we did is um, the second day then uh, when we drove in, um, I'll, let me, let me, maybe I should finish the uh, walk-in day. So it was a very docile crowd, the street, or the folks around waiting. Uh, we went and met with the Mex like I say, some government officials, learning, talking about the issues. What was really surprising, um, I have approached this issue uh, personally from a, one perspective, and that is what a great opportunity this represents um, in terms of how we could begin to help people and begin to help rebuild lives. Hmm. Um, one of the things that I am frustrated by is I'm not hearing enough in the conversation, how do we help Central America, which is this beautiful country. We did a lot of work originally in El Salvador when we first, one of my early NGOs, we built 250 homes in response to uh, a hurricane and an earthquake. 
and had an NGO working that then came apart when 9-11 happened. But um, why don't we have a Marshall Plan for Central America? Why don't we looking at this as how do we help um, our strategy and our NGO in working with El Salvador, in El Salvador, we concentrated working with El Salvadorians here in the U.S. So we saw our role as coming alongside El Salvadorians who are passionate about their country, their family members who are sending back remittance. Um, how do we begin to help them rebuild their own country? So it wasn't us going down putting up houses. It was, okay, we have resources we have some technology. We had a particular type of roundhouse we could put up that was earthquake and hurricane basically proof. And so we could go down and sort of like drop them randomly and be the great white savior coming in. But we felt it would be much better to help organize. And actually, at that time, um, El Salvadorians were primarily in D.C., L.A., and Houston. And they had hometown associations because they were helping supply. So... Could, how do we partner with that? And that's the model I think would be just great. And the, from my perspective, of course, the church would be the great vehicle for doing this. We ought to be doing this um, because there are great uh, outposts that are working all It's an infrastructure. Yeah. yeah. And, and let's work through those. And, and let's, let's work with people from each of those countries and empower them to be part of the change agents. That, that is, in the work we did in 2019, um, listening and, and giving the microphone to people, um, what we did hear a lot is <clears throat> outside money and resources and ideas, but locally led teams. Yes, exactly. um, so it is kind of the same theme, which is how do we empower yeah. people in their own countries? And going yeah. back to why don't we move further south, you know, it is back to what the root cause of right. a lot of this migration might be, right? Yeah. The reason there are migrants is because there are problems. Yeah. Um, but it all depends on your view of what the United States should be doing, right? Yeah. Do we do we put up a wall and just hold all those people back and say, go figure it right. out yourself? Is that a government role? Is that a private role? Is that a charity role? What yeah. Whose responsibility is it? But also, how do we contribute to the problems that led to those conditions in Central America as well? Yeah. I think yeah. That's yeah. Speaking of root cause, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. But that's we don't. I don't hear that conversation enough. I mean, I would love some presidential candidates. To start talking about okay, how do we you know here's the we're we're doing with we're dealing with the symptom, man trying to find a band aid approach. But how do we get back and and really get at this and and there's so many talented people, um, who who are part of those cultures and 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 if they if they were given the opportunity and, and yeah, I believe you, we could we could do that. So yeah, it's just a different approach. I mean, I think about some of the some of those root causes. We're very culpable yeah. in um, the agriculture system that we've exported exactly. to other countries yeah. uh, the uh, the garment factories that yeah. I think have have um, decreased wages sometimes have led to the depopulation of rural communities yes. um, the drugs exactly. uh, the biggest market for drugs that are feeling much of the wealth to the gangs yeah. that are causing some problems are it's the American consumer sure. as well. So, um, you know, it's, so to me, you can't we couldn't really take a standpoint of like, well, that's their problem. Right. Well, I mean, we just dumped a bunch of stuff on them. Yeah, I'm sure they have their own stuff to work out too. But we have to acknowledge that we're part of that. Yeah, and it, it it'll have to take those kind of conversations. That I think are really really critical. So uh, I guess back to the experience. Um, so what was interesting in coming back? There's another turnstile. This time it's 35 cents. <laughs> Uh, wow. went up. But still no one's checking your passport. Well, that's on the on the Mexican side. You just go through the turnstile. <clears throat> and then the because there's so you're in a, a no man's land. Y- yeah, there's a bridge. Okay, for 25 cents and 35 cents. Yeah, yeah. So you, if you were out of coins, you're out of coins. You could just still always, be there. You'd have to be stuck in Mexico. Yeah. Jump it. I don't, jump the fence. Jump the turnstile. So then you're uh waiting, you're on basically a a bridge which has four lanes of traffic backed up and um you're walking. And so you'll walk across the bridge. It's got a wide sidewalk, you know, 12 foot, easy. And you're just with the whole group of people walking till then you stop. Because then on the U.S. side, there is a, basically a border uh, security place in which, like at an airport, you're getting your passport. And there's 
lines that you line up. Now, what I didn't know is there are a lot of of students who are uh, ha- are U.S. citizens who live in Juarez and every day walk across to school in El Paso, and they had a separate lane just at the for students so they could process that uh, quickly. Um, and then there was you know. Uh, some different lanes depending upon, like at a, uh, any airport or whatever, border, U.S. citizens versus internationals and that kind of thing. So then we just waited. It probably was about, I don't know, maybe an hour to walk to get across uh, back in. Um, and, and while we were there, we saw uh, what had happened is the border uh, the customs officials and a couple looked like military folks had come over and got 10 people, um, which is evidently some sort of, there's a list at the turnstile, and no one really knows how you get on the list, and they'll come over and say to the folks in the ticket booth, we'll take 10 people, and they call out names, and and they march those 10 people across, and that's the processing for the day. It seems, as, as we were told, they process, they look at 10 people a day and then basically march them back to wait until they've... So, so they, people are just standing there waiting to hear their name called. Yeah. There's, it's some very informal list. We couldn't quite figure this out, yeah. how that how that works. So, and, and that's, you know, obviously there was no one... Mexico didn't have, you know, this all prepared. Here's the forms you fill out. Here's a screen listing that, you know, like we would, you know, it'd be like... Uh, you know, even even McDonald's gives you your you know waiting your yeah. your turn for your meal. N- nothing, and so that's something I'm really going to try to get learn more about. But it was obvious as those ten people were being marched across under you know military kind of uh, sort of sense. Um, and again, we were told that's that's the kind of typical a day, and they never know what time of day or when that call out for numbers is going to be and it seems to be i don't know if they spin a dial on whatever number comes up or you know i don't know so so it'll be interesting to begin to learn more about that that process so the the border is in a sense open and we're taking applications for asylum but are we really? I mean, I mean ten uh, people, ten, and there are there hundreds, or there, I mean, there's probably thousands there's of people, thousands of people, tens of thousands, or I mean, no, I think I think we probably I, there was one estimate there were probably uh, two or three thousand in the Juarez yeah. kind of transitioning waiting, and that's the ones that you can see. There are obviously mm-hmm. others. Um, what was also interesting is, you know, trying to understand the caravan concept and what Sammy w- was was explained to me is have caravans all the time it's not it wasn't it's not and and then the reason for the caravan obviously is um most of the folks who are trying to get from central america need someone to help them in terms of getting there whether that be in the back of a truck so there's a lot of corruption a lot of cartel kind of thing so it may cost you thousands several thousand dollars to get uh, up there from wherever you are, um, but if you can join a group of people and, and start a little caravan of people in vans and walking, um, then you that that kind of protects you. It's as transportation, a, yeah. It's yeah. transportation and the ability to safety in numbers. Right? Yeah. So it's just a matter of and and obviously as it that's been going on for years, it got a lot of attention because it got called out, which then added to its. Is numbers, and then there's. I mean, I've talked to some people in Muncie who said, "Oh yeah, there's hundreds of thousand people coming to the border. You know, and you have to do something." Well, rocket propelled grenades and machine guns. Yeah, and, it's like, well, yeah. is that really true? I I realized that there was a quick media blurb on this, but in talking to the people who are there every day, and and that's the value for me is going down there. I needed to talk. I mean, and fortunately, getting to know Sammy and then being able to have this conversation. Um, it, it allows you to explore this in much more depth and uh, kind of get it out of the sensationalizing it and the 30-second, you know, clip on the on the video or whatever. So, so um, what led you to this work and, and particularly what led to you seeing food as such a critical um, 
part of that. I know sure. you grew up in a, a sure. small town. So it was and a very like small what? town, a little town, which made it, by the way, do you guys zits the commie strip? Oh, yeah, I know, I know that's, yeah. My hometown was, was featured in that. This last in, uh, Walker Rusa. In what sense? Well, I never watched their series, but evidently this this the boy and his friends were going to a concert in Chicago, and they faced this snowstorm, and they're stuck in their snow up to the windows, and the and he's on his phone talking to his mom, and she's going, "Where are you?" He goes, "Look for a sign," and there's a sign, and he says, and it says, "Wakarusa, Napanee, Wawasi," and then it says like Lagodi, Nawbone, and his response is, "Well, I'm nowhere." <laughs> oh, no. So, so my hometown got from you know, I'm not sure that's the, the kind of publicity you want for your hometown. Oh, that's great. Yeah, but I grew up in a small town, uh, 2,000 people, you know, very tight community. Uh, you know, I, I like to tell the story that we, you know, never locked our doors. Uh, my grandfather had an El Camino that he, he, he left the key in for like 30 years. He never took it out of the ignition. And when we went to sell that after he had passed, we couldn't get the key out because it had been in, <laughs> been in there so long. It would just didn't... But so, yeah, and my wife refers to it as Mayberry, and I explained it. Mayberry is a lot bigger than Walker. <laughs> but, yeah, so that's a hometown kind of thing. Obviously, growing up, obviously agriculture, having fresh food, all that. But I think where it really began to help me was when John and I began this process of really looking at, at the systems and where we were vulnerable. Um, about uh, maybe eight years ago, um, I decided – this issue, I wanted to do a class on urban ag, so I began this process of trying to get ready to teach this class. I kind of approached teaching your classes, uh, especially the first time, is how can I get to a level, and then how can I discover this with the students? How do we build the class? So the first couple times I offer these electives, it's a lot about sort of setting up a framework for us to learn together and how to do that. So it was interesting. I was I was getting ready for this class, and over the winter break, uh, my wife had said to me, "She said, you seem kind of depressed. What's what's going on?" I said, "Well, what I'm reading about our food system is so scary. I mean, it it we're days away from an entire collapse of a system that is so energy dependent, so chemical dependent, so so out of out of sync." with any kind of sustainability practices or localizing. And so that, that getting ready for that class, and then we would go up and talk to Will Allen in Milwaukee and different things and began to really explore this. And then discovering that here in, in Delaware County was one of the most efficient uh, food production organic systems uh, that we have in the country. Um, we had actually started, John and I started working with someone in Texas who was um, – Bonnie was working in Africa because we were still working some stuff in Africa um, where she could create this sort of aquaponics gravel system. And for $100, she could feed a family in Africa continuously. Mm -hmm. And so we began to try to understand those systems, those closed-loop systems that make sense. Um, as you look at our current agriculture practices, as you look at the, the high intensity of energy, chemicals, all those things that have – monocrops and how that's just destroyed uh, what would be a uh, an entire sort of food system that's so important. Um, that got me interested in how we could use this urban ag. And then having seen the Sasaya system that Glenn Barber developed here, um, it was amazing because it was closed loop, organic, you could grow anywhere. So we began to then think, all right, how do we take that system and begin to apply that um, and then my background was uh, originally working um, in a community development context. I had been a VISTA volunteer uh, in college, working in an inner-city neighborhood, un United Northwest Indianapolis. Again, being from a small town that's predominant, uh, all an all-white community, and then in college being able to work in an African-American neighborhood, um, I think that really kicked something I didn't know I was interested in, that is learning other cultures and how to how to begin to understand and work outside of a, my normal comfort zone. So that led to this sort of then how do I uh, got very involved with Habitat for Humanity, started a campus chapter here, uh, was able to start the Habitats AmeriCorps program nationally, be part of that, and traveling to, you know, 30 cities, inner cities around the country working with 
with AmeriCorps and Habitat and getting me in those contexts. So what I began to see is with this food system, we could begin to take areas of our cities, which are, um, you know, been, been abandoned, factory sites, other kinds of issues, our food deserts, uh, lack economic opportunity. So how could we begin to take this now growing system, which is not dependent on soil, um, could be in a warehouse, could be how could we create these sort of hubs of growing food? We have plenty of land and begin to do this. And um, how it got really kicked off that was as we were exploring that, um, because I had, I had worked in Baltimore starting uh, earliest where we first formed the AmeriCorps stuff in a neighborhood on the west side called Sandtown. I became really close with the folks who had moved in and began to redevelop and work with people in that community and, and really create some amazing results, a very holistic uh, community development strategy. Um, what I began to see was that we could begin to do this in that urban setting. And um, the city of Baltimore happened to launch a competition uh, called Growing Green, uh, along with the Chesapeake Bay Trust. They were looking at how could they take inner city Baltimore, which had a lot of vacant property and a lot of uh, uh, you know hard surfaced area. So Baltimore being a basin where anytime it rains, all that water flows into the Chesapeake, uh, and you can't really control the, what it picks up, you know. Um, they said, well, let's start at the source. Let's get as many of these hard surfaces back into where water can be absorbed, where we can capture that and stop some of that runoff. So they put a competition out to the neighborhoods to come up with ideas. And because I'd been working with this group in Baltimore, uh, we, we targeted a place called Martha's Place, which was transitional housing for women coming out of substance abuse. So we, we began to look at how could we use this growing in these greenhouses as not only healthy food. Um, through some other work in Africa, we began to understand the importance of nutritional value in treating um, the effectiveness of HIV uh, treatments and so on. So your body has to have a certain amount of... T- so we began to say, all right, as part of the detoxing for women to help them sort of really become clean after you've gotten out of the initial, healthy food becomes a way of really addressing the body will regenerate. So the thought was, well, we've got to get healthy food in for these women. So what we did then is we took a, a hypothetical block and we, we basically designed these greenhouses, this growing system, but we added to it what we call value-adding, the idea that, all right, growing the food's great, but the real money and the real opportunity is what I do with the food after I grow it. So um, could we train the women to, to, you, to have a chef school in which they could learn how to culinary to cook uh, healthy, organic food? Would they be marketable then as a be employment? Could we begin to not only give them each their own greenhouse where they could grow and then distribute and sell? So how many micro-businesses could we create out of this effort, which then gives, gives this opportunity for the neighborhood to have jobs and begin to restore, uh, bring, keep that wealth in the neighborhood? So food trucks, you know, uh, part of the strategy was that, that uh, women could own their own food trucks. So it could be grown in the neighborhood by one, someone in the neighborhood, sell it to someone in a food truck. They could go all over Baltimore, begin to um, locate that there, uh, could have a food truck, farmer's markets. And, and then the cool thing about, about food is you can do so much with it. So you you know, Kelsey, as you travel, one of the first things you do is you taste the food, right? Yeah. I mean, a tomato all over the world gets put into all kinds of different products. Mm-hmm. And so the opportunity now to 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 brand this as a market potential, I think, is, is one of the things that's really key. Growing up in a small town, I loved the potluck dinners mm-hmm. at church. And I would look for certain women, primarily, <laughs> looking where they were going to put their pot on the big long table right because i knew i wanted that casserole <laughs> or whatever it is they made right? staking it out yeah you stake it out so that's true if you go in any of these church things in these neighborhoods food is such a one it's such a great place to create community uh, but it everybody has their own little take on it those are all micro businesses mm-hmm. and so we began to talk about how could we begin to brand uh, like sandtown 
what products would come out of Sandtown that would be part of this value added. So the, the stream of micro businesses, I think, are endless through food. And the fact, as I mentioned earlier, every household spends a third at least of their income. So when you look at in like a place like Muncie and you t- say, well, what in the economy are, ever, are we spending the most on? Well, some of us buy cars. Some of us buy certain other products. But we are buying food, and we're all, unfortunately, you know, the 1,000-mile Caesar salad is that, that, that food's coming in from all over. But a large percentage of that we could grow mm-hmm. locally and create all these off-spin micro-businesses yeah. that would be part of that. And then celebrate that because, um, you know, I love going to ethnic food uh, festivals and activities. So the idea was in this competition. And fortunately enough, we were uh, we we were s- uh, selected as one of the ten finalists. And then at the the big showing, uh, where city officials, uh, state officials, EPA, they had sort of a blind voting on mm. on product. We won the People's Choice. Oh, cool. And so um, that project, then we l- later entered in an international competition. Uh, of this great conference called Internationally Making Cities More Livable. And we were the only U.S. project selected, mm. and we won that competition oh, in wow. England. That's and sitting right behind us, right? Like, it is. It's up on the wall back it. there, yeah. Um, the original one. And since then, we've evolved, and we're in the process now of, um, uh, in Baltimore, I'm really hoping that we're able to uh, finally, finally capitalize uh, building another version of this that's evolved now, but the same intent. The idea that we can use food um, as this neighborhood catalyst, um, not only as a place where people can come and celebrate and enjoy the culture through music and food, but also then we can create these micro-businesses and create this opportunity for people to learn to cook, to learn how to create their own products. Uh, learn and, and obviously, just like any other thing, then there's got to be someone who knows how to market. There's got to mm-hmm. be someone who knows how to, So there's these secondary businesses and entrepreneurship things that can happen so food has become my passion as as this is how we rebuild inner city neighborhoods this Mm -hmm. is how we go to the border and we begin to build this so we can do this so um yeah it's it's uh kind of a a, i'm obsessed by it i think that it says a lot about scott that right in the plan what do you see right in the middle jay of of this plan Brew pub, <laughs> a brew pub. <laughs> well, as I as I try to explain to the Ball State officials when I take field trips, <laughs> this is an agriculture based business that we're visiting because we're studying agriculture and urban environments. So, by touring a brewery, you understand grains and science. So it's all it's all for academic purposes uh, that that would be there, right? Yeah. Thanks uh, for calling that one out. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so is there any when you're coming up with uh, ideas that you want to pursue to make a difference as we're wrapping up here? Um, are there any underlying philosophies that you keep going back to? Are there um, any um, standards that you look for sure. in a project that you're um, like design principles? Sure. Or? Well, of course, the bigger picture is um, I have a faith perspective that I, that I base everything on. I have a a belief system that I believe that we are here to help other people. We are here um, intentionally to to make a difference. And we do that through relationships. It's not, I have something you don't have. It's, how do we work together? And so um, that's why partnerships, we don't really want to be a consulting firm. We want to build partnerships and work with you through the process of, of how to implement. And um, unfortunately, uh, we have not been as successful, uh, haven't been successful at raising the capital for these farms and so on. Uh, but uh, someday, I think we'll be able to, to ex- explain this and get it going. But So the values become around those relationships. How do you, how do you work with something? Because, uh, you know, I love Sandtown. Now, most people, when they've heard of Sandtown, it's because that's the neighborhood Freddie Gray was apprehended. Uh, you know, I watched those scenes. I saw people I knew from the neighborhood mm-hmm. who were trying to be peacekeepers and trying to do that. But I love that neighborhood. I mean, um, I, I, every chance I get, I try to go and hang out uh, because I've built such great relationships there 
over that time. And I love for our students to come. We normally had taken field trips there. And the first thing we always did, though, we always worked. We always joined a Habitat Day. We tried to add value to the neighborhood. Um, then we'd sit down and break bread and talk, and the students could learn about the neighborhood. But we always wanted to contribute first. We always wanted to not be there just to glean knowledge, but how could we make a difference? So, uh, And the students, of course, loved those kind of experiences. I still have alumni that, that talk about those kind of trips. So having the, the values that are important to me are those relationships, listening, understanding, and then having uh, behind that um, the purpose that I'm driven by is, is to basically to – to make a difference and to be helpful. Yeah. Well, I always enjoy talking to you, Scott. Even in this uh, chat right here, like, you know, I, I never knew about the circular homes that, yeah. you know, there's always something new that I'm learning that you have done as you're pursuing uh, trying to do good and build relationships yeah. in the world. And so we really appreciate you coming on, and you're definitely good people, Scott. Well, and, thank you. And thank one you. thing we should probably mention right here at the end that we haven't mentioned her name at all is that you're – your wife, Terry, might be even a gooder yeah, that's person. very true. Uh, uh, that's why we're connected. Yeah, yeah it really yeah. is. And yeah. uh, so Terry was uh, Griffin's, uh, my son, who's autistic, his first therapist. And and that's how we got to know Terry and Scott. And and Terry really became my wife Annie's, like, uh, rock in that I time. Mary Poppins is one of the <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh-huh, for sure, Mary Poppins. And uh, we still stay... Uh, yeah, it's connected. It's like we have uh, aunt and uncle uh, for yeah, the kids, too. Great. So we just really appreciate you just being in this world, in this community, well, and being on the podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you for the opportunity. All right, uh, Jay, that was Scott Truex. I'm, I'm just thrilled that two people who are such a part of my life had a chance to sit down and chat. Yeah, uh, I I knew of Scott. Um, of course, his office is right next to my wife Karen's Where office. Where we are now. Yeah, sitting in her office right now, not paying rent to her. Um, but yeah, what a fascinating guy. And I, uh, I've i heard a lot about him, but um, it just, you, you mentioned it in the interview with him, but uh, you just don't recognize sometimes how much local people are doing. Um, and and uh, you just kind of, they're just people you see and wave to and say hi to, but he's really got a lot of depth there's a lot going on there yeah and um you know even even I, i've known scott for for years and just had no idea how much that he's done in the past and all of the vision of what he's doing in the future i just know when i would talk about some of the work that i'm doing mm-hmm. scott would always have like a tie-in to it in some fashion right and so to have a chance to sit down with scott and it made me realize i want to sit down with him more we should talk with him more yeah but there is something to be said about it's like the closer to uh, the pr- the closer proximity of a person is to us, maybe the less we value them to some extent. Or I, I didn't not I don't value Scott. I value Scott in a way bigger way um, than maybe uh, just his just his work. But um, as we think about locally led change, you wonder how much that actually holds us back. Um, mm-hmm. you know, Scott is consulting around the world. And in Baltimore, in the border, and uh, I know he's done a lot locally as well, but how often are local folks yeah. overlooked for the outside expert? Yeah. Yeah, you'd almost think he's he's a guy you see quoted or an expert from D.C. on something or something, and you'd, you'd read him in the newspaper. I mean, there's a couple people I want uh, to get early uh, interviews with in the early part of the year for the podcast that – um, one of which uh, I'll be with this afternoon at a swim meet. Yeah. And my wife, Karen, as you know, one day said, you ought to interview Janae. And I <laughs> thought, oh, I really should. Again, you just don't think about it. They're just awesome people that are next to you most of the time. And you don't mm-hmm. really think about, gosh, they have so much to them. We ought to spend time with them. And that's one one thing the podcast is good for, for us personally, I guess. Yeah. There's good people closer, much closer to us than we realize. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that's not That right. sounds scary. That's not weird. Yeah. That's not weird. That is weird. I don't know what I'm saying now. Um, it, yeah, and uh, I don't know what I'm talking about now. So the border, uh, that his his real life uh, time spent there. Um, I know a few people that have gone down and spent time either volunteering or working at the border. But um, again, 
I don't think the media covers it. There's, uh, I'm sure there have been stories, and I'm sure there have been uh, uh, very insightful and personal stories about the border. But when he talks about the groups of people and women and families and uh, kids and the docile nature of the, these peaceful groups just trying to figure out what next in their lives to be in a safe space, I can't wait to hear more upon his next visit. Yeah, there's nothing normal about – I mean it's all too normal I guess. But just to hear him talk about what he saw – and you could kind of see the normality of their existence there, like their day to day of waiting to go somewhere else. Right. But just still in that moment there they are. Yeah. Um, I thought that was something that was pretty powerful, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I just I guess it's always important to do this. I think about myself and my family or yours um, in that situation. And how would that? How would that be? So I guess it depends on your perspective. If we're all here to reduce human suffering, this is this is a place we must focus and not politicize. But um, it has become a very political topic taken to extreme ends. And um, and how, how that process dehumanizes. Of course. And the language of how we talk about those individuals who yeah. are, for the large part, trying to pursue a better life for their family mm-hmm. or um, – running for their lives in many cases or running from a climate mm-hmm. uh, that no longer supports agriculture mm-hmm. uh, and they can no longer support their families yeah. and are going somewhere else. And m- really my all of my work centers uh, began with meeting Emil Carr in Honduras, who's the guy that made my T-shirt, mm-hmm. and meeting him and realizing that, wow, there are we're connected with these real people every single day. Um and then he made that journey. You know, he made it eventually into the United States. And now that he's here, he supports his family in a way that he couldn't if he were actually right. with them. And that's to, to that's where we need to start thinking about these individuals who are just trying to make a better life for their families. And it's not some, like, terrorist caravan. Right. Um, yeah. And so it's, Scott's story is really important. And I really – you know, Scott has – a lot of experiences and has traveled a lot. So maybe the his preconceived notions of what that experience would be like are not going to be as different from the reality as mm. like maybe his students. Right, right. That have not traveled or haven't been to other places, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's not as far off than he may have expected, but I think he's validating a lot of, of what we've seen. So we said it in the in the interview, but I, I, I want them to get back from that trip so we can get a few of those students in the room and let's ask them some of those questions and see how their paradigms moved uh, in the process because um, I'm sure many of them will be disturbed out of complacency a little I'm bit. I'm sure it'll be their first, many of them will be their first time ever experiencing anything mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, uh, really interesting. So then, of course, the other part of him then moving into the food topics, which I know is hot on your mind right now based on the, the, the work you're doing and the book you're moving into. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So um, I got a lot of travel ahead of me. I'm working on a new book. Uh, I don't know the title of the book yet. It's, I think it's not going to be a Where Am I book. Oh, that's so disappointing. Which, oh, you finished the trilogy, though, so I think yeah. that's okay. The only Where Am I title I wanted was Where Am I Wearing? And then it just the other ones Stuck. Were, were kind of forced no. upon me. Yeah. So, um, so this is a book that's going to be about uh, global regenerative agriculture. That's not a great title, by the way. <laughs> it's not. The word regenerative. Like, people in the movement absolutely love the word regenerative <laughs> And to me, it has too many syllables. It's it's a you know? lot. Yeah, it's a mouthful. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. I can't. That's not going to work in the title. And uh, I've offended people already. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I, love, I love the concept. I love See, I can't even say it. But the word. Come on. Yeah. Can we come up with something different? So you're going to be traveling a lot. What, this summer, this spring? What's your what's yep, that look so like? So from uh, basically now, uh, my first trip is in February. I'm going to revisit uh, Columbia. Uh, and where my eating, I wrote about the Arwako, which is a, a group that uh, indigenous group that uh, believe that where they live is the heart of the world, mm. and uh, they believe that their prayers keep. They, they see what the rest of us are doing to the world, like how Western society is doing to the world in terms of the environment. Like they can hear the bees sound different. You know, they're very in tune with everything, and they pray for us, and they believe their prayers keep the world <laughs> from falling to pieces. Uh, and they feel they are the older brother, um, 
and we are the younger brother, and they have something to teach us. Wow. So I'm going That's there. your first stop? Yeah, that's first stop. So I'm going to go there to learn. Um, wow. yeah. And so regenerative, before I get into more places I'm going to go, um, is basically um, – I'm looking at it pretty holistically, not just uh, – sometimes it looks at just at, at soil. So it's farming in a way that grows life, and often regenerative is life in the soil. Like, mm-hmm. and, and, and more life in the soil means more carbon in the soil, and more carbon in the soil means less carbon in the air. Mm-hmm. And some folks have um, said that if we get enough people farming like this, if we converted all of agriculture to this way of agriculture – then uh, we could completely sequester all the carbon that we produce every single year, release into the air every year. Um, But that's a little bit like saying, well, to change the world, all you have to do is change the world. But there's no doubt that uh, it can can be part of the solution, and I'll discover how much of the solution it can Mm -hmm. can be. But I like to think it's not just about building the life of uh, the environment, of the soil, but also of the lives of the people who are working that soil, who are living – in that environment as well because as I've traveled around um, and as I come from a rural community which you know my my grandfather's generation were farmers for the most part out in rural Ohio and then their children were told to move to the factories that's mm-hmm. where the opportunity was yep. and then those factories left and now those communities are like well, what do we do now who are we now what temp agency can I work for and so it's been devastating for rural communities not just the united states but then around the world because we've exported this way of agriculture uh and we've also exported our factories as well which we talked a little bit and the, the, the chat with scott um where don't be a farmer move to the city work in this factory factory collapsed around you killed you or no, injured you um and, and those factories are even leaving some countries for other countries. And then what do those people do right. that left the land? Um, so I feel, to me, um, agriculture, like Scott, I've come to this realization that it's the key. It's hmm. a really, maybe not just the key, but a very, very critical part. Foundational. Yes, of, of um, lives and livelihoods for people around the world it will be interesting to see it from a uh, perspective of other countries so so the future of this of the podcast of good people so you're going to be gone yep. you're going to be on the road i'm on the road some so we're going to be meeting new people not currently in our list right um yeah we still have some locals and some other people you know and i know that we can interview but we'll be doing calls from maybe other countries together to talk to some of these folks or playing back some conversations you've had over the travels you'll have in 2020. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm, that'll probably happen a lot where the internet connection is not always going to be good or affordable for me to have my phone. Right. Um, doing things. So just record, uh, just record. I might record and then we can have a conversation or, um, so I'm really looking forward to that. I think we'll get some very interesting perspectives on, um, it might, you know, the, the airings of the episode might be a little more, even more sporadic a little bit, but I actually think that there could be maybe more content this year yeah. because of the folks I'll meet. I'm sitting down talking with them anyhow, right. and I'm just going to record it for the probably It's going to be, be even more crappy audio quality at times. Uh, I'll have to talk with our, uh, sound engineer. Yes. Yes. About that. Chuck. Chuck. What's his name? <laughs> Chuck. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, the first trip is to Colombia, and then I'm heading to um, Patagonia, uh, which I, I didn't mention this yet, but the, my book is going to be published in 2022 by Patagonia Books, which is the um, you know, the clothing company. They mm-hmm. also publish books, and I've had a kind of a relationship and went there to talk several times through the years, and um, I'm really excited to work with them. There's mm-hmm. there are very few brands that I would be excited to work with they, yeah. they might be the only one yeah and yeah. i'm really pumped their um, mission fits yours they sure. just changed their mission last year to, that we're in business to save our home planet and wow. it's not to make money you know they're almost apologetically you know make money uh but they make a great great products that last forever yeah um and do it in a way that is ethical yeah. um you know, all their stuff is fair trade now, and so maybe we'll have some folks on from Patagonia. Yeah, too. Um, It'd be I'd be interested to talk to them from a business standpoint yeah. for sure. Yeah, 
And the first, the first tri- one of the first trips is to Chile, the actual geographic region of Patagonia. There's something to mm-hmm. me that uh, you know we travel to the Amazon as well. And when you say Amazon, the first thing you don't think of is like the lungs of the world. You think about the company, and anymore, you, you know, and <laughs> a little, true. and a little bit like Patagonia. Oh, Patagonia. Oh. People, I don't think think of the geography first. They think of the the company. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. anyhow, lots of traveling Hawaii and to um, for various reasons heading to Hawaii, uh, heading to Zimbabwe, um, heading to possibly to Norway. I don't even know all the places I'm going yet. Yeah. Well, it'll be fun for me, even if there aren't uh, people to interview on, is to hear from you and what you're seeing right we'll we'll all be living through you so we can find out where where are you where are you there what are you seeing who are you staying with what are you talking about um i'm sure it'll be a fun journey to take with you so. and i think it'll help me um our conversations will help me kind of evolve my thinking mm-hmm. like, here's what i'm thinking now or, yeah. you know i know two months ago i kind of thought this but yeah. now i'm seeing that this is so important yeah um, so I'm really looking forward to taking everyone along for that journey. And I, I imagine we'll still have kind of normal interviews on as well. But it's going to be a lot of travel. Great. All right. Looking forward to it. Until next time. 2020. Here we go. Let's do it. Thanks for listening to the Good People Podcast. Special thanks to my friend Jay Mormon for co-hosting and to Cliff Ritchie for the great tunes. You can listen to Cliff on Spotify or find him at cliffrithcheyart.com. Let's keep the good going. Please share, rate, and subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. Visit kelseytimmerman.com slash people to find show notes, suggest guests, learn more about my books, and tell us about the good you are doing in the world.